When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes. <laughs> including you. That is best-selling author Annie Lamott offering what she calls operating instructions, which, by the way, is also the title of one of her many books. That clip we just heard there, you guys, it's from her 2017 TED Talk. It's racked up more than six million views. It's one of those go-to TED Talks that whenever I'm feeling kind of crummy, I pop it on, and boy, does it turn the beat around. Anne is one of those authors whose fans haven't just read one or two of her books, they have read 10 or 12 of them. She's actually written 19 books in all, by the way. What readers and what I personally love about Annie and her books is that she really tells it like it is. She's open. She shares everything, even the stuff you don't want to share, the messy stuff. And while Anne is incredibly successful by any measure, her life, like so many of ours, is so full of struggle and, yeah, it's also full of pain. But Annie is on the other side of that pain, and she has this beautiful and renewed sense of optimism and purpose. And she takes what she's learned, and she shares it. In this episode, Annie lays it all out for us. She describes her childhood experiences that led to both crippling anxiety and addiction. She's a big believer in talking about those experiences, and I've learned from her transparency. I know that you will, too. But I do want to warn you, in this conversation, we really do get real. We talk about losing a parent, addiction and recovery, and finding God when you feel like you're all out of options. As you take it all in, I hope that she helps your life the way she helped mine. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Anne Lamont. I'm Hoda Kotb, and welcome to my podcast, Making Space. Annie, I love you, and um, I love every every book you've ever written. I highlight, I cover, but I did want to ask you this. So if when you were a little girl, someone was going to come up to you and tell you, hey, little Annie, you're going to get married, but it's going to happen when you're 65. Like, what would you have thought as a kid if that were to have happened? I would have felt complete despair because everything in the culture, especially in the 50s and then early 60s before the revolution, um, uh, was that that was the reason I had been created was to get married and, and find a nice husband probably right out of college and then have several children and keep my weight down. <laughs> Annie, there's something about finding love at this stage in life. Yeah. I found love when I was 50 and I was like, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. Yeah. What's love like at 65? It was always secretly a dream. You know, I know it was for you, mm -hmm. too, to find someone who is your soulmate and your partner, to have a partner in all of this, 
you know, sometimes fever dream of, of life and getting older and it all. And so when it happened, I felt like, okay, what's the catch? <laughs> I was just thinking, if you've spent your whole life, you know, having your girls, your girlfriends as your besties, was it hard to readjust your sales? No, because I had a, um, I had a standard and it was that with most of the other men I'd been with, I realized that if they had been women, they wouldn't have been my best girlfriend. You know, they wouldn't have been hmm. somebody in my really inner sanctum. And so that was my standard, that I wanted to find a man who, if he was a woman, I would have wanted to be best friends with. And that was what, in fact, I found in Neil. Oh, my God. I love this chapter. I want to get to all the chapters of your life, but I want to start— back in the beginning, and I often try to picture you as a little girl. And I wonder, like, what was little Anne Lamott like? Well, I'll send you a picture because I (laughs) was a tiny sort of wood sprite. I had this crazy, curly, kinky, platinum blonde hair and these gigantic green eyes. And I was very, very, very thin. But I was a very scared child. I was very bright. And uh, very sensitive. I um, I had an older brother and a baby, my little brother. And it turned out I needed to raise the baby because my parents were so unhappy and distracted that they probably should have raised, you know, teacup poodles and, or orchids instead of children. And so I took care of raising this baby, my little brother, who's now six foot four and a very, very cherished part of my life. And I believed two things. One was that I was defective because my parents were so unhappy. It must be me. Mm. If it was me, then I had some sense of control because I could try to do Mm. better and need less. So I felt that there must be something really wrong with me. And then I also felt I was responsible for making dad come home and there would be trickle down. If dad was okay, then there'd be trickle down and mom would feel good about herself and then we would all get nourished. So it was a very difficult dynamic for me. And I developed some survival skills that um, became my default landing places whenever I've been very, very stressed or overwhelmed by life. One is to think I need to do better and ideally need almost nothing and that I'm in charge of helping everybody um, feel happy. It's just such a big responsibility for a little kid. I mean, I was just thinking of all the stuff that kids have to be concerned about, but it sounds like you had all kind of grown-up problems. I had grown-up problems, and I got migraines at five years old and 40 pounds. So, But back in the 50s, there wasn't a consciousness that children could have mental illness or burnout. You know, mm-hmm. I think I had burnout um, because there were, there were just a lot of balls in the air. Now, Hoda, let me, let me ask you something. What were you like? Who was Hoda at five? Um, I was—I had frizzy hair, too, and I had a funny name, and um, I think my probably most difficult years were, like, my junior high years. I remember—this is weird, but I remember playing spin the bottle, and I was, you know, playing the game, and you spin it, and when the bottle lands on somebody, you kiss them, and I was so hoping it was going to land on this kid named Todd— and I had my stop sign glasses and my hair and my name and all of me. We were just just sitting there and I spun the bottle and it landed on Todd. And I was so excited. And he said, I think that's going a little too far. Oh, my God. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was like a knife in my soul. Oh, yeah. But I remember always kind of feeling 
in those years on the outside. So I think I turned into a pleaser, like, how can I fix this? You know, they don't like me. I'll get them to like me. Here's an example. (laughs) This is so weird. But on the show about a few weeks ago, somebody walked by the window and flipped me off. And you know what I did? You're going to laugh, Annie. I was like this. Hey, I was, hey, I I was literally trying to get the guy to like me. I I was like, he flipped you off. Like, let it, let it go for whatever reason. Who knows? Well, we got addicted to people pleasing as young girls because it became one of our comfort zones. Here's the funny thing, though. I just did that last week, trying to wave (laughs) that guy into liking me. I did it this morning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We, We both still have, we still have work to do. You know, as you go through, there are ways we get courage when we're kids. Um, And how did you find, where did you find courage when you were a kid? Well, I got funny, you know, because I was being bullied and my parents were atheists. They were very avant-garde. And um, I had this secret, deep secret that I believed that if I asked for help in the dark, something heard me. I always had this secret belief that there was some kind of love energy that heard me. Mm. And then I heard eventually that courage is fear that has said its prayers. Mm. And so when I was a little bit afraid, I just prayed, help me, help me. And then I learned, you know, do it. I learned the motto, do it afraid. You know, you take the action and the insight follows. I wrote a whole chapter on perfectionism because it's the voice of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. It's the enemy. Mm-hmm. And all through those years, mm-hmm. all through high school, I really tried to do it all perfectly. I tried to be, mm-hmm. and my parents encouraged that. Mm-hmm. And if I brought home a B plus, they would say, this isn't a criticism, Annie, which is the great palace lie, because it obviously was, but how much harder would it have been to get an A minus? I'm so into you probably because you just keep getting up. And I know that one of the ways that you tried to get your mojo was by having a drink. When did you have your first drink, Annie? Well, we'd had sips because my parents were both, my my mother was from England and my father was just very, very hip, slick and cool and jazz oriented. So it was believed that you could give children sips of things so they could test beer or wine and, and therefore be more um, superior to other children in waspier families. But I remember chugging a beer, a 16-ounce Coors, when I was 12 years old, so it would have been 66, with my best friend, Lisa Campmeyer, and I felt hope bloom <laughs> in my chest. I could breathe again. But I remember that first beer... And I remember thinking, I'm good. (laughs) And then I believe I also had a predisposition. It is a family disease. Both my brothers ended up being alcoholics. My dad was an alcoholic. And um, my son was an alcoholic and addict. And um, it just began to be what I loved most about life was having a couple of beers before seventh and eighth grade dances. And then I began Mm. to smoke marijuana that I then smoked until I was 32 on a daily basis. And of course, I discovered lots and lots of other drugs along the way that either helped me uh, lose weight or get even more animated or help me get to sleep a little later. And this went on, you said, for years, but was there a point where you were, what was, the, what was the point where you were on your knees and you said, that's it, like, I can't live like this? 
The funny thing about um, being addicted to drugs and alcohol is that you just hit bottoms every step of the way. You know, mm. I heard a guy when I first got sober say that he began deteriorating faster than he could lower his standards. And this happened for me by like 18 or 19. I was humiliating myself. I was driving drunk and stoned a little later when I was started taking a lot of LSD and other hallucinogens. I was driving kids and teenagers around in the, I lived in this little hippie town and because I had such terrible self-esteem and I was addicted to people pleasing that if I was driving seven miles an hour with stoned friends in the car trying to get to the ridge for the sunset and these teenagers needed a ride, I'd pick them up because I loved for them to love me and to think I was so cool. Mm. So, you know, over and over and over again, it's like you can't lower the limbo pole low enough. And I did that. I mean, I had some catastrophic public experiences and uh, they weren't enough. And then at 32, because of grace or something, um, I woke up one morning after a very, very bad three-day 4th of July holiday where I'd been in blackout for three nights in a row. Um, one night on the boat watching the 4th of July fireworks at Chrissy Field, which is in the San Francisco Marina, in a rowboat with my publisher. And I don't have depression. I have a rather severe anxiety disorder. And I just kept thinking kind of calmly about climbing over the side of the boat. Because I was exhausted. Oh. And sometimes grace looks oh. like exhaustion. And it looks like running out of any more good ideas. But grace always meets you exactly where you are. And then it doesn't leave you where it found you. So on July 7th of 1986, I woke up. I was so sick. And, you know, there was a three-inch cigarette ash next to my bed. I don't know why I hadn't burned my tiny houseboat down. And I called a sober friend and I said... <sighs> okay, I'm. I'm. Uh, hmm. I might be done. Yeah. Did you worry any that without the booze, your creativity wouldn't be there? Yes. Did you wonder? I, I and and I was right. <laughs> um, I it took me almost a year to write again. It took me um, ten months. All I could do was to get sober and stay sober. Mm-hmm. And when I got sober, I was panic stricken because everything I knew was that. The alcohol and the alcoholic community and the marijuana were what gave me uh, my sense of creative freedom Mm -hmm. to express myself. And so uh, all I did was get sober. And then I remember noticing little by little that it was like my windshield had gotten washed and that I could actually see things and I could remember them. One of the great things about being sober is you can remember what you did the night before when you wake up. You don't have to call around and ask people, you know, see if they're still speaking to you or how worried they are about whether or not you need um, to go to the hospital. And, uh, And so little by little, I started to realize that the windows of my soul were getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. And then I started doing what I've always taught, like in Bird by Bird or when I teach writing workshops, was that you just do a little bit at a time, bird by bird, and you let yourself do it badly. And um, and little by little, I, I wrote probably the best novel I ever wrote, which is called All New People, because I was an all new person. Coming up, Anne Lamott on losing her dad at an early age and how she still makes space to grieve. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Let's talk about um I know that you you were in your 20s when your when your dad passed and everyone deals with grief differently. My dad passed when I was um a junior in college and I remember it like it was yesterday. It was like, yeah. wait, h- how did that happen? How did you how did you deal with that passing and that grief? Well, I drank. <laughs> I was 23 when he got sick. I was already drunk every night. Um but as soon as he got sick, my brothers and I were just off and running. He got brain cancer. He had a metastasized melanoma in his brain. And uh, it was up to us to help him through it and take care of it. Mm. And so uh, how do you survive the unsurvivable? With a couple of really close friends to whom you can tell anything, anything, anything. And, uh, and it was incredibly hard. And I actually am not positive I ever came back from it. But in every book I've ever written, I talk about how um, you're not going to get over certain losses. And the world tells you you will. The culture has kind of a grid of when you should be over certain losses, like 18 months on a spouse. And then we'd like to see you start participating more fully in life again. A parent, two years, right? A best friend, six months. Meh, if. A brother, six to eight, right? And I discovered you don't. And it's okay. You know, Carly Hmm. Simon has that song, I forgot what it's called, but she says there's more room in a broken heart. And I discovered Mm. that if I didn't let my heart seal over, that my dad was really fully alive. And then when my mom passed, my mom too. And after the acuity of their loss passed, because my heart didn't seal up um, and I was still permeable, I could feel them again in a very Mm. real and vital way. The heart sealing up is such a, a beautiful analogy because you, you you can tell when someone's heart is hard. I mean, you can see how they look. And I, did you consciously say, mine's staying open, or did you just, that's Annie? What I've discovered is that if I set the intention of staying as permeable as I can and crying and grieving and being ugly and enraged that the person I've lost is still alive for me. And you know, this is such a cliche at this point, but there's that great line of Leonard Cohen's that there are cracks, cracks and everything, and that's how the light gets in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And so you can kind of be a birth coach for other people in deep grief and tell them the cracks are good. You're gonna be so grateful for those cracks a little ways down the road. 
My best friend's um, husband passed a couple of years ago and she cried every day. And now she says it'll come forever, but it comes in waves. And she talked about how they're less frequent, but when they come, they're big. Yeah. It's like the first one yeah. and, and it hits you super hard. And their love story was one. They have a love story that worked as friends, as lovers, and spiritually. They had all three. Like if someone were to ask me what's a perfect love story in in real life or in the movies, you know, it would be theirs. But I think that that was so profound about the waves. Just like you mentioned, like you still cry about your best friend, probably your parents. And that's, you just turn that into a good thing, which I think for me, I was like, wait, why am I crying? That was so long ago. Through love, all pain. (laughs) will turn to medicine, becomes medicine for others, you know. And I think so much of the reason that it's uh, so frightening for people to go through loss and grief is, first of all, we didn't get an owner's manual for it. It was about, You were supposed to just kind of get over it at some point. Mm-hmm. But the fear that if you start crying, you'll never stop. Mm-hmm. And that if you start crying, it will just wash you away like the Mississippi River, right? Instead of the truth that it will wash you right into your very self. Wow. Wow. One of the acronyms I really love for fear is the frantic effort to appear recovered. And that has been (laughs) one of the um, things that kept me all those years from becoming wild and free and, you know, that, that kept me kind of gnarled and clenched up as a mother that I needed to look like I was doing a great job, that I appeared to be, you know. And once I was given permission by other women in various forms of sobriety to just fall apart and be a mess and say to mm-hmm. them what was true about how my mothering or had gone that day, I was home. It was like I could breathe again I, because you start to laugh about it and laughter mm-hmm. is carbonated holiness and I would get effervescent again and I'd laugh. We would laugh till we had tears streaming down our face comparing notes <laughs> about what it was like. In Operating Instructions, a book I wrote about my son's first year, I um, I wrote about the grief I felt about giving birth to somebody who was going to have to go through seventh and eighth grade, you know, which is for me what hell was like, and then the hell later on of being an active alcoholic and addict. You know, but another acronym I just learned for fear that I'm really living by right now is that um, it's everything we've talked about up till now, which is that fear expressed allows relief. And so if I call you and I say, Hoda, I hate everything today and almost everyone, and I'm just scared to death, and I feel very, very old, and my grandson's about to be a teenager, and it's an awful, scary world, and and da-da-da. You wouldn't say, oh, for Pete's sake, Annie, (laughs) stop. I'm right in the middle of something. You know, you wouldn't. You would probably cry for me, and you'd say, oh, honey, Mm -hmm. you know what? I was there Monday, and let's, let's just, for two minutes, both put our phones down and go get ourselves each a lovely cup of tea, and we're gonna have a little bit of tea together. And I'm going to hold Mm. some space for you while you cry, if you want to, Mm. or I'll tell you what Monday was like for me. It was, I was down the rabbit hole. Don't even bother trying this, the frantic effort to appear recover. This helped me. This didn't. And we'd end up laughing. And then we both, I'd be home Um, free. Yeah. 
I feel like crying right now yeah. for what you just said. Like I have a lump in my throat. Yeah. Um, I think that's it. Sometimes you you realize like, oh God, I had that same day Monday just saying that. Yeah. <laughs> that's so beautiful. And also like making space. I think that's that's kind of the title of this podcast. But what's funny is when I spoke with you before, Annie, I felt that. I felt such a click with you. Let's talk about Sam. Uh, so you are in your 30s and you're pregnant. Uh-huh. Was that a joyful moment when you learned the news or were you freaked out? Um, both. You know, the culture and certainly my parents forgot to tell me that you could have two feelings at once and that all truth was a paradox. And I was ecstatic, literally ecstatic and terrified. And Sam's father, to whom he eventually became very, very close as a boy, the father didn't want anything to do with me. So I was going to do it alone. His father's 6'4", and very, very, he was very angry. And he would show up places and point his finger at me and say, let me put it this way. You are not going to have this baby. Oh, jeez. And I didn't have any money. I've been sober three years. I've been at this church for four years. So I had a recovery community. And the church told me that wherever God took me, um, he or she would be waiting there with whatever was needed. And I knew by then that courage was fear that has said its prayers. And I um, kind of, I just, um, you know, I had, I had mixed feelings all the way through my pregnancy, terror that I wasn't going to be able to be a good mother, that I'm, you know, I, I'm like so redeemed and and I'm a really um, decent person and I have really great coaching from, from my best friends and my mentors and whatnot, but then I'm a pretty regular screwed up person, you know, I'm, um, I have this anxiety disorder and I have a little narcissism and I have terrible self-esteem some days and I came to believe that one of the ways that of looking at God is the Jehovah Jireh, the provider. What do you need, honey? I just need a little um, help today. Well, I wrote a book, Help Thanks While the Three Essential Prayers. And so that's what I did all through pregnancy was help me, help me, help me, you know, help me. And, um, oh, my God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It worked. I got it. You know, I, I after I had the baby— Friends paid the rent for me for a while. And then several, maybe when he was eight or nine months, um, Matt, I got a book review job at um, Mademoiselle. And so I had a little money coming every step of the way. I was provided for. I was trying to make a living and I was newly sober. Okay. And Sam had colic. And that was just a nightmare, really a literal nightmare. Because um, at five o'clock, when he was like two months old, it was like he'd look at his little watch and go, oh, is it five already? And then he'd start to sob and wail, and nothing would calm him and placate him. And it would go on until huh. 10 every night. And huh. um, and so what do you do in the face? Where do you start? You said, well, with everything, with real life, with sobriety, with marriage, with having a sick parent, you start where you are, you push back your mm-hmm. sleeves, you let yourself do it badly. And then little by little, people were teaching me things that helped the baby start doing better. 
After the break, the power of surrender, how Anne Lamott let go and found hope. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know, God is, you, you talk a lot, obviously, about God, and I think that that is, like, that's your North Star. Is there a prayer that you repeat to yourself? Is there something that you say? And I'm asking you this because it was so funny, Annie. I was just talking to this lady, and she said, I have one prayer that I pray every day over and over and over again, and it's only about 10 words. And I said, okay. She said, are you ready? She teed it up pretty good, and she said, it always works. I said, okay. Because I was telling her I felt like I wanted to be more of service, and I didn't know if I was being that. And I would look at the end of the day and wonder, like, what did I do today? And she said, okay, here's your prayer. God, I'm here, and I'm available. Oh, beautiful, yeah. God, I'm here, and I'm available. And that really struck me in my soul, and I thought, oh, my gosh, yeah. And I'm just even sitting here in this moment. I'm here, and I'm available. Yeah to serve. Is there is there something that, that you like, one that resonates with you? You know, I really pray mostly to um, be bread for the journey for others. Mm. And for, you know, Rumi said that through love, all pain will turn to medicine. Mm. And so I pray that all this, my mistakes or my terrible thoughts or my judgment or my whatever, will be turned into medicine for others, that I can share it Mm. and that it was awful and I lost hope and I came through and I'm back in the saddle. You know, we we hear stuff that changes us molecularly. And what I heard in 1986 was a very well-known, very rich and handsome guy say, I came into sobriety as a hotshot and you all helped me work my way up to a servant. And he said, that's where I live now because that's, Ooh, the, only, okay. that's the only fulfillment. I got chills. Yeah. Oof, I just got chills yeah. all over. Wow. You described yourself as you were drunk and messy, but you, you went to this little church. What was it about the church that kept you there? Like what happened? Wow, that's such a beautiful question. What happened? Well, the grace of God is spiritual WD-40. And it was a year before I got sober. It was 85. 
And there used to be this town of 2000 where there are six churches and there was this funky little church with this Charlie Brown tree out in front. But I would hear from the flea market this music emanating. It was either mm. gospel, you know, or it was um, the, the songs of the civil rights movement, which I'd grown up on because mm. my parents were civil rights people. And it was Pete Seeger and the Weavers and Joan Baez and We Shall Not Be Moved and Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And that stuff, <laughs> music gets in so much deeper to our souls and to our heart cave. And um, I just went over there mm. and I sat there and I didn't want any of the Jesus part because because my parents were atheists and that would have been, you know, a nightmare for them. But the people there, there are only about 40 of them, they didn't hassle me. They didn't try to get me mm. to understand anything theological. They just saw that I was damaged and deeply, deeply lonely. And they let me be. And they got me water. <laughs> and I stopped running for my cute little life when the sermon came up. And little by little, I just decided to um, <sighs> surrender, you know, mm. everything beautiful and incredible, including my sobriety, began when I just surrendered. When you, when you grow up with brothers, mm. if you surrender, it means you get your face ground in the dirt. <laughs> but with God— and life and the love energy that surrounds us, if you surrender, you go, you know, my my prayer with God, I, I said with enormous bitterness, I said, okay, fine. <laughs> you can come in. When you talk, I feel like there's so much beautiful furniture in the room. I'm missing some of it. It goes by so fast, but I feel like you can, you, you're like a hope giver. So what gives you hope these days? Oh, what gives me hope? You know, I wrote a book on hope called Almost Everything. And it was like almost everything gives me hope. One of my mm -hmm. daily prayers is bless them and change me. Bless them and change me. Bless them and change me. Uh -huh. And you see that you're getting a little better. And you see just how incredible people are all around you, doing the best they can. Wendell Berry, who's just about my favorite poet, wrote in The Mad Farmer's uh, liberation front poem. He said, be joyful, though you have considered all the evidence, <laughs> you know, so you can have your glasses on where you're looking at the evidence and it's just grim, you know, or you can put your good pair of glasses on and be joyful and be grateful. And as soon as you're hmm. in gratitude, you watch out world because gratitude is some mysterious magnetic energy that just draws goodness to you. It draws people to you. It draws wonderful um, new life to you. When you're grateful, you just see, you know, whatever you focus on, you get more of. So you get grateful, you get more grateful, you get more blown away by the beauty of it all. Anne Lamont, that was so beautiful. I am inspired. Your books, every single one of them, I, you know, I dog ear and highlight. I've ruined most of your books and I like them that way. Um, I gave out Help Thinks Wow for Christmas to all my friends one year and each year I wait for a new one. So I know you, you keep churning them out, but Annie, I love you so much. Thank you for being on my podcast and um, I look forward to what's next. Hoda, I love you so much too. Thank you. Oh, God bless you, you good. God bless you. That was awesome. Hey 
guys, thanks so much for listening and going on this journey with me. If you like what you've heard, and I sure hope you do, please give Making Space a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Making Space with Hoda Kotb is produced by Allison Berger and Ursula Summer, along with associate producer Olivia Rouchard and audio engineer Bob Mallory. Original music by John Estes. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Minna Kathoria is our executive producer. Soraya Gage is our general manager. And Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.